Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Wednesday, November 3rd, and I'm your host, Emily Flippin. Today, I am joined by the Fool's Brian Stoffel, and we're going to be talking about a newly public leader in search engine optimization and online marketing, SimRush. Thanks for joining, Brian. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Emily. Yeah, it's good to have you on. It's the second time here on Industry Focus. We had so much fun last month that we had to do it again. Yeah, I survived my first one. I was nervously waiting to see if there would be a callback. <laughs> you did more than that. This is a really interesting business, one that you brought to my attention when I you know, pinged you and said, do you have any ideas for Industry Focus next week? Uh, how did you find SimRush? So uh, Brian Feroldi and I have a series that we do for Backstage Pass, and it's called IPO Stocks from Scratch. And we basically, we start off knowing almost nothing about a company and we take it through our frameworks and we do it real time, making tons of mistakes and looking like idiots, because I think that that actually helps. Like, I think that's a good thing because if we look like idiots, then other people are okay looking like idiots when they're getting started. And then all of a sudden we demystify the process of, of investing stocks. So we did this. And when we did, we realized that uh, this company scored very well, so well that Brian Feroldi started almost freaking out because his score was so high. Um, and so that was that was how we found out about it. I have to say, I was a little bit of a skeptic myself. I did go back and listen to some of the commentary that you and, and Brian Feroldi made about SimRush, but something about it just didn't sit right with me, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And being the complete pessimist that I am, I, I went and I did my best to kind of rip apart, you know, whether it was the management team or their financial picture here. And while things aren't perfect, I will say I didn't find any glaring red flags. I, you know, that little canary in the coal mine that I was looking for. So it's certainly an interesting business. And it's been a while since we've talked about a business that I've been so excited about on Industry Focus, uh, covering the Consumer Goods Show on Tuesday. A lot of times we're, we're talking about companies that maybe aren't performing at quite the level that SimRush is. Yeah. And, but, but I think you did find some, some holes that are worth talking about. We can get to that in, in the company's total addressable market. And we can have a nice little debate about how we, <laughs> how we view total addressable market. I had to get something, so I decided to harp on the total addressable markets. Uh, but before we get to that, let's actually tell you what the business does. I mentioned that it was a leader in SEO and online marketing, but they really call themselves an online visibility management platform. So essentially what they're doing is they're going to corporations and they're getting corporations to pay them just a subscription monthly fee for access to information that better positions their website or businesses for digital traffic. Um, so they have offerings like a keyword magic tool that helps identify popular keywords, monitor their performance on those keywords versus their competitors, and then also perform things like SEO audits. So you can almost think about it like a pumped up version of Google Analytics. Uh, so they provide information about all sites though, as opposed to only your own. Um, so really good for things like competition tracking, which really is kind of a blind spot in the market today. Yeah, absolutely. And, and while that SEO and that magic keyword is key, I, I think what what really kind of sets them apart is they have this one slide in their in their deck where they list all of the different tools that they have, and they show how 
there are lots of people who are leaders in some of these tools like local SEO, like Yext is really good at that or listing management, Yext is really good at that. But in terms of social media analytics and social media monitoring and PR, uh, customer relationship management, th those are things that SEMrush is in and, and it kind of follows a, a, a theory that I have, which is that as SaaS has become more popular, the companies that can have a large enough umbrella with enough good enough products are going to win customers. They don't have to have the best in everything, but they have to have enough good enough products to make it easier for a company to just say, you know what, I'm just going to use SEMrush. They've got all that we need and all their tools are good enough. I'm not going to try and cobble together 10 different providers for all these different things. And I, I will say one of the other things that I found really interesting in the space was that Again, my, my skeptical mind was kind of like, okay, well, sure, nobody is quite the leader that SimRush is. They are a G2 leader in all the segments that they offer from big to small businesses. But aren't there just a ton of like really well-capitalized competitors in this space? And I like the fact that management was pretty upfront and they said, yeah, you know, look, we have, we go up against businesses like Google and Facebook, but the difference between us and them is that we're inherently neutral. Um, so some of the capabilities that they're talking about, they don't have an incentive to provide traffic from certain sites over others. Um, they're just content neutral. And that's actually been a value proposition that for businesses like Roku, again, going yeah. up against really entrenched leaders, managed to make a name for them say, themselves because of that inherent neutrality. So I like the fact that SimRush is kind of like, hey, look, we know. We know we're not as well capitalized as some of these you know, multi-billion dollar businesses out there, but we do have neutrality and they'll never be able to compete with us on that. Exactly. And you know, I would even say you could compare it to Shopify, like as, say that you have a killer product that people love and you want to sell it online. You could go on Amazon, but you could also eventually you, you, you could be cannibalized by camp by Amazon. They could see what you're doing and they could create a similar product for cheaper. Or you could go with Shopify who has no interest in selling any goods and it, it makes it a no brainer. And the same thing here. You could go with Google and Facebook, and I, I doubt that this is an either-or proposition. I think that it can be an and-both proposition. Like, you can use some Google Analytics and SEMrush. Uh, because the other thing we haven't really touched on is that the prices are... This this is not some super expensive product. They're very reasonable prices. It was, it was actually one of the things that I, I understood why it was a reasonably priced product, but I wish it almost wasn't. Because um, you'll notice that when you look through their financials, they have a ton of free users under their freemium model um, and a very small subset of paid users. So they have over 400,000 free users, and that was up 21% year over year in 2020, but only 67,000 paid users. That is growing faster. Again, that growth is accelerating in paid users, and it's really valuable to have that big top of funnel where you bring people in for relatively low cost and then you know upsell those users as they trickle down. But the prices aren't that high. The prices range between $100 a month to $4,500 a year. That's not including those one-time add-ons. So with how reasonably priced the product was, I was surprised to see less than 100,000 paid users. It just it struck me as very small in relationship to especially how management views their op opportunity. Yeah, and I mean, it's... It it can be two sides of the same coin. You can look at that and be like, well, look at how much room there is for growth because it is so small. And th that's one of those things that we'll only know which person was telling the right story five years from now. 
Yeah, exactly. And one of the things that you and and Brian, you know, the Brian's called out was just how efficient this business model was. They, this was a business that was founded by two co-founders, Oleg Shegalev and Dmitry Melkonov. So I apologize if I'm pronouncing their names incorrectly, but they founded the business in 2008, and I believe they've only raised a handful of cash since going public, less than 40 million dollars since it was founded over a decade ago. I mean, that's just crazy. It's it's bananas. And what the other thing that I really kind of love about it is that these two have known each other for a long time. They've been friends for 30 years before they founded the company and they built this tool for themselves. The, their, their story, the way that they pitch it, which they do a good job of doing, is that they think the ability to market is really important in today's world. And they wanted to create a tool to help them market themselves. So again, I'm going to harken back and I'm not saying that this is going to have Shopify like returns. So let's get that off the table. That is not a promise being made here. But Toby Lukey, he started building snowboards for Shopify. And the only reason that Shopify is what it is today is because he couldn't find any way to sell those snowboards online that was easy and allowed him to focus on the snowboards. Well, kind of the same story here, but really the same story with a lot of products we love. The first customers for SEMrush were the founders. It was a product they built for themselves. And then they realized, oh, this thing that we built just to kind of help us do something else, that might actually be the real product that we should move forward with. And I know we're not saying it's like Shopify, but I like that analogy because it applies to so many different aspects of this business. Another kind of Shopify-esque story being told here is just how many of their customers are really small enterprises. Um, 95% of their customers are small to medium-sized businesses, very familiar to what Shopify experienced when they first went public, again, catering to businesses that were otherwise overlooked by the existing players. Um, and while they do have a lower average revenue per user, for those smaller users. Um, they also have really strong international diversification. So this is already a business that is doing more than half of its sale outside of the United States. Again, really good start, I'll say. Yeah. And the, just the one other point that I'll add on to that is that when you are catering to small and medium-sized businesses, it's not uncommon for your net revenue retention to be really low. Like if you look at some companies like a CrowdStrike, for instance, you're used to seeing that net revenue retention be like 130, 140, 150. When you're talking about companies that cater to small, medium-sized businesses, if you can hit 100, that's good. HubSpot's a great example. HubSpot has been a killer investment and just they do really well for their customers. And their net revenue retention is usually, it's really good if it's like 102%, which means that existing customers are spending about 2% more every year after churn. And the churn is high just because that's what happens when you have small, medium-sized customers. They go out of business, like the founder, something happens in their family and they can't run the business anymore. And then HubSpot loses that customer through no fault of their own. Well, SEMrush is, is catering to those same customers and their net revenue retention is 121%. I think that's, that's phenomenal given the way that they operate. Well, it shows just how critical the product is. And uh, management does think that there's some existence of a flywheel effect here where, um, you know, the more customers they pull in, the better data they get about, um, you know, what, again, what keywords are, are working, um, what products are, are attractive. And then as their products improve, thanks to those customers, then they should theoretically get even more customers. Um, I'm not sure if I really uh, agree with that. Um, I'm not sure it proves itself out the way it does with other businesses, but it is to say that that net revenue retention rate does show that there is a element of necessity that exists behind what SimRush does that doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. 
Yeah, I agree. It, it, and what you're really talking about is management saying there's a network effect that helps our AI. And I've said this many times, that is the theme for the next five years for investors is figuring out which companies are full of it when they're talking about AI and which ones are actually serious. Hey, we have a real advantage here. Well, I think at this point, you know, now Wednesday, November 3rd, we can say Zillow might have been a little bit full of it yep, with I, their AI driving their algorithms. <laughs> I think we might have enough evidence to say that our Zestimate is not the most reliable price to use when, when figuring out how much our home is worth. It does go to show that you really never can tell what's happening behind the scenes here. And the same thing could be true for a business like SimRush. It could be true for Riskified, which is the last business that you and I talked about mm -hmm. on Industry Focus, or with Lemonade, or all these other businesses that are making very real investments into things like algorithms or artificial intelligence. Um, they don't always work, but when they do, they do to an extreme extent. So. With that being said, let's talk a little bit about this market opportunity for SimRush because I have to say, you know me, I'm pulling apart, I'm grasping at strings here. This is what I found that I thought was a little bit egregious. It was how management defined their total market opportunity, their TAM. They get to $13 billion a year in terms of total market opportunity, which is actually kind of reasonable. When I saw that number off the bat, I thought, yeah, that sounds about right. I'm actually surprised it's not higher. And then I went through the assumptions that they made to get to that number, and I was just a little bit put off. Um, in order to get to $13 billion a year, they take their average revenue for small, medium, and large-sized businesses, and they multiply that by 100% of every large business in the world, 100% of every medium-sized business in the world, and 50% of every small business in the world to get to that $13 billion. And then management goes on to assert that that's actually conservative and that they think if they get a whole 100% of every small business in the world, that would be a $20 billion market opportunity. Now, I realize that in defining the addressable market, that is just the addressable market. It's not them saying we are going to have every single customer in the world. But it was kind of crazy to me that in order to get to $13 billion, right, just $13 billion, they had to go out and look at every single business and define the market opportunity as every single business in the world. I wish they had made a more concerted effort to narrow that market opportunity down, maybe to businesses that have built-in marketing budgets, um, anything to kind of narrow it beyond every business in the world. I, I just hate seeing that as an investor. I mean, so here's here's where I said we can bat this around. So total addressable market, I'm a little bit of like a black sheep. Like I don't pay any attention to it at all. And it's funny because the other Brian, Brian Froley said, asked the first time, he said, is that because you think management overstates it? And I said, no, I, I don't pay attention because I know that one or two investments is all you need to reach your goals. Like if you, one investment in Shopify in 2016, you can have 10 other investments that are pretty bad and you're still in really good shape. So the point is, is that I think that if you are a long-term investor, you can invest in companies and they have no idea what they're, what did Amazon say their total addressable market was in 1999? I'm you know, sure I, it was not what it is today. <laughs> right. I don't, I don't have any idea what it is. And I don't think Jeff Bezos knew either. What did, what did Elon Musk, even Elon Musk, I bet when they went public, there's no way they could have said, oh, our total addressable market is X compared to what it is today. So the point is, is 
I, I'm, I'm more of a psychology student. And that is that one thing that I've learned that I really believe is true is that we adapt better than we assume we will to the things that scare us. And so the reason that I'm using that analogy is that if, if they realize that maybe the market isn't as big as they thought, I think that they can adapt in their effort to fulfill their mission um, better than anyone might be able to assume. And when that happens, then the addressable market ends up being, when you look backwards, much bigger than we thought it would be. I, I love that. And I agree with everything you said. Um, I think my my hesitation maybe comes more from the aspect of of how they think about strategy and penetrating new customers. And I like when that strategy is really clear. And part of that is understanding who is the most likely customer for my business and how do I reach the most effectively. When you're saying that every single business in the world is your customer or could be your customer, that to me doesn't communicate a really clear strategy about how they plan on getting them to become customers. And it actually is just one step away from those those terrible words that no investor likes to hear, which is, if I only get 10% of the market opportunity, I'll be a $20 billion business or what have you. And I, I think the reason why we all hate hearing that is because it doesn't matter how big the market opportunity is if you don't have a strategy with which how to penetrate it. Um, and so I'm not saying that is what's happening here. And your point is is well heard, which is, you know, market opportunity itself is a fluctuating aspect. I just wish they had some, maybe I wish they had a better communicated strategy. Because sure. just telling me, hey, we're going for businesses. <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't build up a lot of confidence. Well, Emily, we're actually in luck then because today's November 3rd, but on November 10th, Brian Froldi and I are going to be interviewing the company's CFO, Eugenie Fet- Fetisov, um, and we can ask him these questions. We can pin oh, him wonderful. down a little bit. I can't wait to tune in for that. Is that going to be on Motley Fool Live on Backstage? I'm not totally sure, but I'm, I'm sure that it can be cut up into articles for everyone to to watch. Awesome. Well, if you're a Motley Fool subscriber, look forward to that. If you're just listening to our free content, then hopefully we'll get that cut up into some bite-sized chunks for everybody. Uh, But before we sum up here, let's talk a little bit about their financial performance. You mentioned a really impressive net revenue retention rate of over 120%. Um, One of the things that stood out to me was their annual recurring revenue per paying customer. It was over $2,000 in 2020. And that actually is, it does split up a bit between the small businesses and the large businesses. Large businesses are closer to $4,000, small closer to $2,000. One of the things that kind of felt like it was missing for me though, was more information about their customer acquisition costs, the return on investment for those customers. I do wish I had a little bit more color about exactly how valuable this thesis is for the businesses that they pull in. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, I went back and I looked. And so they spend, uh, let's say in the previous quarter, they spent about 41% of revenue on sales and marketing, about 53% of gross profit. The fact that those are very close tells you that this is a high margin business, which is not surprising. They want to get that sales and marketing down to about 35%. So look, that's never going to go away. Okay. And I think that that is just that is how the world works when you're going after small, medium-sized businesses. When you go after enterprise customers, you can have actually a pretty small sales and marketing budget because you only have to contact four or five people at a business to get all of that revenue coming in. But it's not the same for SEMrush. So I agree. There are some there are there are some details that would give us a better picture. For me, the fact that that uh, net revenue retention is as high as it is tells me enough for me to be bullish on the company. That being said, this is a business that is 
posting negative uh, operating margins. So they are experiencing operating losses. It's only around a 5% loss right now in terms of total revenue, and that has been declining over time, as in the loss is getting smaller, not larger. Uh, the good news is they do have positive operating cash flow. In the most recent year, I believe that was almost 5%. Pretty strong for a business of this size, I will say. Um, I, I Other thing that kind of made me nervous was revenue growth. I, I want to see it faster. I, I don't know if I'm just becoming more picky in this kind of low yield market where high flyers are just, you know, I, I should say, say getting hammered by the market right now, but growth is rewarded and slowdown is not. And their revenue growth is up 36% year over year in the most recent quarter, but it's a slowdown from their five-year CAGR up around 50%. I wish they're so small, they're so young, so few paying customers. I wish that was accelerating. Yeah, I mean, it. I do too. Uh, and, and full disclosure, I went out and bought a very, very small position in the company after uh, the time period passed where I could do that. But I think you mitigate the risk in that by controlling your position size. So for me, it's less than 1% of my overall portfolio. Awesome. Well, with that risk being noted, let's talk about a couple of other risks. This is one that you and uh, Feroldi mentioned, but I think it's really interesting, and that's the risk of cookies. As a lot of, of, of investors and just people may be aware, uh, there's currently, I believe it's through 2023, if memory serves, uh, a plan to phase out the use of third-party cookies on things like websites. And that's how a lot of data tracking is done right now, and it actually powers a lot of what SimRush's products use in order to determine again, those the SEO strategy, the marketing keywords, those sorts of things. Um, what do you think happens to this business when cookies go away? So there's two things. There's two things I want to say. And one is, is cookies are going away for everyone who they would be competing with. So it's not a unique thing. And by that, I mean all the tiny startups that are trying to do the same thing that SEMrush is doing. So SEMrush is going to be losing it. And so is everybody else. So that's key. Now, is it possible that Google and Facebook could use their data consolidation to really dominate this, this area? Yes. I mean, one of the most brilliant things that I've seen was a counter take on what Apple has done with their privacy standards. Um, and it came from, I think it's Ben Thompson from Stratechery, um, who said that, hey, everybody's applauding Apple doing this. Look at while it might be good because all these other people can't monitor what you're doing, Apple's going to go into hyperdrive monitoring everything. And they're doing it in part so that their advertising revenue can go up. And lo and behold, that's what's happened. So is it possible that Google and Facebook could, could kill these competitors and people will say, yeah, they're not neutral like SEMrush, but I don't really have any other option. Yeah, that is possible. At the same time, that's a problem that management knows about right now in 2021, and they've got two years to figure it out. Again, I control for that risk with position sizing. And I think that other investors need to take that into consideration too. It definitely is interesting. I don't think this is thesis breaking. So to your point, if I was interested in investing, which I might give this one just a bit more time to play out, but if I was interested in investing, I'm not sure this would be the thing that kept me out. But if I was an investor, I would certainly be keeping an eye on it. Uh, with the removal of cookies, there's been a lot of alternatives to replace data tracking in the market. And a lot of the big alternatives are coming 
from the sites that SimRush competes with, right? We're talking about Google, Apple, Facebook, right? They're the people trying to figure out what the alternative looks like. And it's inherently going to be weighted in their favor if they end up with that industry standard. Uh, my hope is that a business like the Trade Desk, which is one that we talk a lot about here at The Fool, gets a bit more traction. They have something called the UID 2.0, Unified ID 2.0. And I hope that something like that, which is a, a different party's kind of, I guess, uh, strategy becomes a bit more unified and used. But what SimRush really needs is a single ID to be shared across all websites. Otherwise, different data trackers kind of go to the largest provider, something like Google in this case. Um, but without having any more insight into what that looks like, I, I, management didn't talk about it a lot. I wish they had been more clear with what they're actively doing to prevent this risk. But in absence of any more awareness in here and recognizing that we have a number of years before this comes to fruition, then I agree with you. I think it's something just to keep your eye on. Be aware of the fact that this is a, a real risk that could impact SimRush products. But hopefully we have a management team that's being proactive here. Yeah, just, you know, and, and it's also investing. The, the, the most important thing that people forget is that investing is not black and white. So if you're worried about it and you like Alphabet or Google, then own a little bit more Google than you do SEMrush and you, you, you've, you've mitigated that risk a little bit just by doing that. Well, the last kind of risk I'll note uh, before I pass it off to you, if you have any last thoughts here on SEMrush is I, I have to, it's become a thing now for me on industry focus. I have to note when we have weak internal controls with businesses and SEMrush is another business that has gone public whose auditor has you know, come out and said, look, the processes in place here aren't going to mitigate some of their risks with material misstatements. In particular, a lot of their valuation, right? When you come back to what happens internally, uh, asset prices that don't have market prices, that was one of their big weakest spots in terms of internal controls. Uh, always worth noting that whenever we have a business with weak internal controls, you know, you're not gonna you're not gonna have a as much trust or transparency into their their financial statements, but you also can't be surprised if and when there's some sort of material misstatement, right? So I always say that upfront because if you're going to invest, which again I'm not sure if it's a red flag or a deal breaker for investors out there, maybe for some people, you should just be aware that that risk exists. Yeah, absolutely, and I I think that's important because then you're not caught completely blindsided when when that statement does come out. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Brian, thank you so much as always for coming on and providing your insights. This is a super interesting business and one I look forward to hearing about more in the future. Thanks for having me back, Emily. Anytime. And listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out to say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet at us at MF Industry Focus. As always, people in the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Rick Engel for doing his work behind the screen today. And for Brian Stoffel, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.